0: The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. God, I ask that today... As we come before your word, we would bow ourselves lowly before it. Lord, I pray that we would be convicted about the nature of the Holy Scripture. I pray that today we would see you as more glorious and your word to us more powerful. Please, God, today as we come before you, open our understanding. And I ask God today if there's anyone here who has ignored your word or put away your word or pushed it off or wanted nothing to do with your authority by your word, God, I pray that today you would bring them under conviction, open their understanding of who you are and what your word is. God, I pray for those of us who love your word, that you would give us a deeper appreciation for it, that we would delight in it and we would be joyful to receive it, that just like Ezekiel, we would consume it and be delighted in doing so. Lord, I pray for the sermon that you would give me words to say, that you would help me to be faithful and to be clear and to be compassionate towards the people who are hearing this morning. But Lord, I pray that you would do the work that I cannot in changing hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Says who? Says who? Now, This is one of the earliest arguments that my children have learned in their early lives. For example, when my daughter Petra tells my son Athanasius to do something, and he responds with the phrase, says who? In other words, he is questioning her right to make this demand of his life. It is a question of authority. Under whose authority are you making these claims, Petra? Although he doesn't know that vocabulary. And this is the question that Paul is going to address in our text this morning. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3 starting in verse 16. Paul is writing now to his spiritual son, Timothy. He has been warning him. He has been pleading with him not to be like the false teachers who are rising up in the church at Ephesus. And he has systematically addressed various different forms of moral failings in the false teachers. Now he is going to dig deeper and address the root issue of their deviation. Why do we call it? false teaching? Why do we not just call it a difference of opinion? The answer is found here in our text this morning. Please follow along as I read aloud. Second Timothy chapter three verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. This is a very simple, short text that is filled with glorious truth. So our approach to this text is simply to divide it in two parts. First, we're going to consider the authority of scripture. And secondly, we'll look at the utility of scripture. One of the most important questions that any person needs to answer in their life is this, is the Bible the word of God? If it is not the word of God, then we can simply classify it as some kind of interesting literature. And maybe we could even call it a book of wisdom. But if it's just a bunch of stories about a bunch of people who lived a long time ago that are just like us and has no divine involvement or control in its writing, then we do not have to obey or listen to anything it says. We can simply stand over it like we're at a buffet and we can pick and choose the things that we like and everything we don't just leave it behind. However, if the Bible is from the divine creator of the universe, then it is our responsibility to bow ourselves before it and place ourselves under its authority. If my, my daughter tells Athanasius, Hey, you have to do this. And he says, says, who? Who? When Petra responds, Mommy and Daddy say so, then he is required to obey. It's not about the messenger. It's about the origin of the message itself. It is important to recognize that the authors of the Bible were fallen, imperfect men, just like us in this room, but they were led to write the Scripture. How? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul explains it this way. All Scripture is... It is breathed out by God. It finds its origin in God himself. Let's consider a few claims of some of the biblical authors. David, for example, is one of the most prolific writers of the Old Testament. 75 of the 150 Psalms are from him. And maybe more that we're not sure who they belong to. David wrote many Psalms and it says about him, he says these words in second Samuel chapter 23 verses two and three. It says, he says this, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And he continues on. In other words, he is declaring my authority as king has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my defeat of Goliath. It has nothing to do with even my anointing by Samuel. Everything that I am saying that is of value to you right now is because it comes from a higher authority than me. It comes from God himself. David attributes his writings to the father he makes it very clear that those words come from not a temporal throne in jerusalem but the eternal throne of the universe and jesus confirmed that david spoke by the holy spirit consider jesus words in matthew 12 verse 36 when he said david himself in the holy spirit declared what does that mean It means that David is speaking, not of his own authority, but of the authority of God himself. He cannot speak inaccurately if it is the spirit speaking through him. Then we see later in that verse that he quotes from Psalm 110. By saying this, Jesus acknowledged that David was not developing these thoughts out of his own mind. Rather, these words were given to him to speak. This is not only true of David, but it's true of all of the authors of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Hebrews is one of the last books of the Bible that, that was ever written. And it says in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. God spoke to our fathers. It is the word of God coming to our fathers, how by the prophets. What do we have in our Old Testament? The writings of the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In this passage, it is made very clear that all of the true prophets of Israel were speaking not their own thoughts or philosophies. They were speaking the very oracles of God. However, this shouldn't surprise us considering that over 3,800 times the prophets in the Old Testament point their authorship to God Himself. Perhaps the most commonly stated phrase in the Old Testament is this little one right here Thus says the Lord. Or many other times there's this little tag This is the word of the Lord. That was to say, This doesn't come from me, guys. I'm just the messenger. Oftentimes people hated the messenger because they hated the origin of the message. Later in Hebrews chapter three, verse seven, the author of the book clearly states that his letter is to be considered equal to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice and he continues, in other words, get what he's saying. As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, who's going to hear his voice? This is a letter that was written down. He's saying, if you're reading these words, you are hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. And this is very significant because if these words are from the Holy Spirit, rather than from man, then they are binding on us. They are binding on mankind. So how did this happen? How did these people write the word of God? How is it that God used these kings and these shepherds and these fishermen to write down a message for mankind? How did he do that? Well, Peter explains this for us. This was our New Testament reading this morning. I'll read a portion of it to you. Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 through 21. It says, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Prophecy does not come from somebody just conjuring it up in their brain for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The idea here of being carried along this imagery that is being used is like a boat that is in the ocean and it's got these big sails that are opened up and the wind is pushing it forward and propelling it through the water. That is the Holy spirit propelling those people to write as they did or it's like a stick that is dropped into a river and the current directs it where it is to go god used those men and he used their human faculties their human brains to use them to write down his own message of eternal truth for us donald gray barnhouse explains this very well this is the best explanation i've found but it's a lengthy quote so it'll be here for you on the screen it says this Just as the Holy Spirit came upon the womb of Mary, so he came upon the brain of a Moses, a David, an Isaiah, a Paul, a John, and the rest of the writers of the divine library. The power of the highest overshadowed them. Therefore, that holy thing which was born of their minds is called the Holy Bible, the word of God. The writing of Luke will, of course, have the vocabulary of Luke and the work of Paul will bear the stamp of Paul's mind. However, this is only in the same manner that the Lord Jesus might have had eyes like his mother's or hair that was the same color and textures as hers. He did not inherit her sins because the Holy Spirit has come upon her. If we ask, how could this be? The answer is... God says so. And the writings of men of the book did not inherit the errors of their carnal minds because their writings were conceived by the Holy Spirit and born out of their personalities without partaking of their fallen nature. If we ask, how could this be? Again, the answer is God says so. God has given us a perfect holy word. People have been searching for all sorts of flaws in the Bible for thousands of years, and have yet to come across any. That's because the word of God is perfect. And in our text this morning, God is reminding Timothy through Paul, and God is therefore by extension reminding us that we cannot deviate from this scripture. We can't just decide that we're going to obey part and ignore the other. We must build our belief upon it and upon all of it. For as he said in verse 15, it is the scripture that can make us wise unto salvation. Now, there are certain questions that every person has to answer in their life. You might call these worldview questions. There's the question of reality. What's really real? Is there only a physical universe or are there spiritual things out there too? If there are spiritual realities, what are they? And are we supposed to even be involved with them? Then there's the question of God. Is God real? Is there only one God? If there is a God, how does he want us to interact with him? The the third thing that we could see here is the question of the nature of man. Are we just highly evolved apes? Are we sleeping gods, sleeping deities? Are we highly complex machines? Or are we actually made in the image of God himself? Then there's the question of morality. How do we know what is right? How do we know what is good and what is evil? Are ethics just a human creation? Do we simply go by whatever the majority at that time happens to believe? Or is there such a thing as objective good and objective evil? And if so, how do we know what that standard is? The next thing we can consider is what happens when a person dies? Do they experience just some kind of personal extinction? Or is there such a thing as heaven and hell? And if so, how does someone avoid hell and find their way to heaven? Those and many, many other questions are questions that everybody has to answer in their life. And here's the surprising thing almost every person I have ever talked to in my entire life about these issues thinks they know the answer. Not only do they think they know the answer, they are firmly committed to their answers and they will say when I ask them questions about it, how do you know that? They will say, I just know. I just know it. The question is, says who? By whose standard, according to whose authority are you making these claims? These questions do have answers. Yes, the spiritual world exists and it is real. Yes, there is a God and he exists in three persons. Yes, he made us for a relationship with him. Yes, we are made in the image of God. Yes, there is such a a thing as good and evil and it is clear to us and God has not been ambiguous about his standards. It's there in the Bible for us to see. Yes, heaven and hell are real and yes, there is a way to get to heaven and how are we to get there? The answer is the gospel. The scripture teaches us that every last one of us that has ever been born from adam was born a sinner by nature but we are also sinners by choice we sin because we like it now your flavor of of choice of sin might be different than mine but we pursue it because we enjoy it and because it's our nature and therefore we have made ourselves enemies of god because his standard we've said i don't care i don't care what you have to say about me. I don't care about your standards. I don't believe that you will actually judge me. So we have become enemies of God. But the scripture also teaches that God has sent his only son to reconcile God's enemies to God himself. And he did that by becoming A man, by living a perfect life. I love that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's one of the most richly theological songs we have ever sung in this church. It speaks about every single aspect of the major parts of the incarnation. That God was born a man. He humbled himself to become like us, except without sin. And he lived a perfect life, always obeying the moral standards of God. And then he died. And he died for a specific purpose to save his people from their sin. And he has made an imperfect but joyous trade that he has given up all of his righteousness to us and taken all of our sin upon himself so that he might pay for our sin and might give us his righteousness. Therefore, through Jesus, we find forgiveness of sin. Through Jesus, we find reconciliation with God the Father. By Jesus, we are justified and we are sanctified. And in Christ, we find union with God the Father. And how do we know all of these things? I have just made a tremendous amount of truth claims. How do we know these things? We know these things because all scripture is breathed out by God. And these things are clearly taught in the Bible. This is not rocket scientists, rocket science. This is the foundational, most basic, boiled down, simplistic aspects of the gospel itself. This is what the whole Bible is about. These are simple principles and they are absolutely foundational to all that we as Christians hold dear. So I know that for the most part, people in this room would agree with everything that I have said. I know that at least there would be mental agreement, but we are not here simply to get our minds on the same page, although that is important. Let's apply this reality to ourselves and not only to our minds, but to our actions before we get to point number two. So I have a few applications for you. First application one. A lack of love for the word of God is the same thing as a lack of God, a lack of love for God himself. If you fail to love God's word, you are failing to love God or to state it positively. If you really love him, you should care about what he said to you. We should be hungry to know more about him and to understand him and to become more like him by seeing what he's like in the word. Let's say you receive a stack of mail this week. If you're anything like me, like Christmas season, your mailbox just fills up with tons and tons and tons of stuff. So let's say that you go to your mailbox tomorrow morning and you look inside and you see that in there, there are three bills, there's seven advertisements, there's 15 of these pamphlets full of coupons and this huge pile of stuff. And then there's one personal letter from your best friend. Now, what are you going to do with that pile of stuff? Are you an insane person? Of course you're going to open the letter from your best friend and you're going to examine it and you're going to want to know what's going on in their life. But when we come to the word of God, we don't treat it like that most days. We fill our time with all of the superfluous things. We put our bills, our business first. We take all the entertainment next and then whatever else beyond that, all those coupons, all that fluff. We fill our days with those things instead of going to the well of life itself, to coming to the word of God that presents God to us. Are you hungry for the word? Do you just desire to squeeze it into your day wherever you have an opportunity? Do you just desire God himself? The reason that we should love the word is because we enjoy him. The word of God is breathed out by him. He doesn't waste words. God doesn't say things trivially or arbitrarily. He speaks exactly what he wants us to know. Nothing here is superfluous. Nothing here is unimportant. So we need to be people of the book. If we say we are people of God, we should listen to what he has to say to us. Application two, how do we come to the Bible? We must approach it humbly. The Bible is not a self-help book. I was at Barnes & Noble recently, and I went through, they had the self-help section, and I was just curious. I was like, I, I don't know if I've actually ever read a self-help book, so I was curious, what are all these things about? And I just kind of glanced through all the titles and kind of looked at a few of them and was just shocked to see, there's just a lot of empty fluff here. You know, the, the amazing thing is, it's the one of the larger sections of Barnes & Noble. And as I was looking through all of these things, I was Interested in the fact that all of these things could potentially help you be a little bit more capable of getting your work done quickly. They they, they might make you a little bit thinner, but ultimately all of these things are of quite limited value. And as I was looking at these things, I was just reminded of the fact that the word of God is not like empty calories for your brain. It is life. It gives you truth and life And it tells you everything that you need to know about life and godliness. We are called as Christians to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. And we will say often that to be a believer in Jesus means that we are laying down our entire selves for God. Yet are we willing to pick up the word of God and bow our heart before it and say, God, show me what I need to know. Show me who you are. Show me how I need to change. So when you pick up your Bible, it shouldn't just be for some kind of little pick-me-up encouragement. Although if you read the Bible correctly, then it will be encouraging to you. We should come to God's Word to meet Him there. We should come to God's Word in such a way that we look at those pages and we are filled with the wondrous glory of God Himself. And when it informs us about how we should think or how we should live, our response should not be, I'm doing pretty good. Our response should be yes, Lord. Yes, I desire to serve you. Show me how I can be a better servant for you. I will no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. I will rather be transformed by the renewal of my mind. That is how we should come to the Word of God. Application three The Bible is the final arbiter in all disputes. Let's remember the context in which Paul is speaking these words. He is writing to Timothy, and he is saying to him, there are a lot of false teachers that have found their way into the church at Ephesus. What are they doing there? How did they get so far away? It's because they have deviated from the scripture. They are making claims about God and about the Christian life that do not align themselves with the Bible. Brothers and sisters, every day for the rest of your life, most likely you are going to encounter people who are wrong surprise that's going to happen you are going to encounter people that do not understand who god is you are going to encounter people that do not comprehend the gospel the overwhelming majority of people do not know christ And even within the church, even within the people who do know Jesus Christ, there are many who are mistaken and have various understandings and misunderstandings about what the Bible actually teaches. And as a matter of fact, it is highly probable that you and I have stuff wrong as well. In fact, I am willing to say to you, I am 100% certain that I have misunderstandings about the Bible. I just don't know what they are yet. And as I come to understand them, I pray that God would give me the humility to make those changes as I arrive at those conclusions. But you and I have things wrong as well. So when there's a question about the Christian life or about the nature of God, what is right, what is true, especially concerning the things of God, you should come to that question with your Bible open. It is not just a debate about who has a superior intellect. It is not just trying to cram your beliefs down the throat of another person. You are coming with them, both bowing yourself before the maker of the universe and saying, please show me who you are. And the way he will show you is right here in our country. If you have a dispute with somebody, you can, you can go to court. I hope you don't do that regularly. We have a litigious enough society as it is. But if there is a dispute, you can go to court, and let's say you get a verdict that you don't like or you don't agree with. You have the right in our country to appeal to a higher court, and you can continue appealing till you get through the circuit courts, and you finally arrive at the final court, which is the Supreme Court. And once that Supreme Court has made a ruling one way or the other, There is no higher authority to which you can appeal. That is the end of the line. They say yes or no, and that is it. They are the ones who are the final arbiters in our country of the ultimate application of the law. In our lives, or in our Christian involvement, or in our church, what we have to understand is that in the same manner, the Bible has the final say on every last issue pertaining to life And godliness. The false teachers in Ephesus were basically disregarding the Bible and they were saying, you know what? My teaching is basically superior to that. Let's just do a very quick history lesson. One of the most dangerous things about one of the largest false churches in the world, the Roman Catholic Church, is that they have elevated the role of the authority of the Pope and the priesthood above that of Scripture. I was surprised when I was growing up and I left a very unhealthy church and I thought, you know what? I'll just go be a Catholic because they're the originals. They were the first Christians. I'll just, I'll just go and do what they do. And I was surprised when I got there and began asking questions to Father Scaletti about the Bible. And his response to me was, don't read that. That will just confuse you. Just listen to us. That is dangerous, and that is what we saw happening in the church at Ephesus. That is why Paul is telling him, do not listen to the false teachers. They are not speaking in accordance with the word of God. They don't want you to know it. They don't want you to understand it. Instead, they want to place their teaching above and over against the word of God. So when there's a difference of understanding, the proper approach is not to puff yourself up with a view of yourself being superior it's ungodly to simply just try to destroy another person and try to prove yourself and prove that you're correct. Instead, the proper approach to any kind of disagreement about what God is like or what we are to do as believers is to lovingly and humbly approach one another with the Bible open and see what God says about the issue. Which leads us now nicely into our second point for this morning, which is this, the utility of Scripture. So far, we've seen that the Bible is authoritative because of the nature of its author. But what is its purpose? Why did God give us this Bible? What did he intend for us to get out of it? Although this is a short statement by Paul, and it is by no means intended to be exhaustive, he does reveal five very specific purposes for which God gave his word. And we're going to focus in on those for the remainder of our time today. Paul says... All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. This word profitable is interesting. It means it's useful to you or serviceable. The word of God is helpful to reach a particular goal. It has benefits to the reader. It yields advantageous results. The word of God is of great value for the individual in all of the following five ways. First, it is profitable for teaching. Man-made regulations, man-made rules are ultimately of no spiritual value. I'm not saying they're of no value. I'm thankful we have a country with laws. I'm thank you, thankful that God has given us government that quells anarchy. But in terms of spiritual value, they're worthless. God is not pleased with mere outward conformity to some kind of a moral code. Think of the Pharisees. Think of these men who were considered they were basically revered as the most moral people alive. They were considered the most virtuous of all people. But it is those very people that God speaks to through Christ in Matthew 15:7 through 9 when he says, "You hypocrites. You well did Isaiah speak of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now notice what they get wrong here. Teaching as doctrines, or as official teachings of God, the commandments of men. Where did they go wrong? They elevated their teaching over the word of God itself. Therefore, when God actually showed up to them and began teaching them the truth, they were completely unwilling to listen to it because they prize their own teachings rather than the word of god or the word from christ himself in the letter to the colossian church paul spoke against the greek philosophy of asceticism asceticism was kind of creeping into the church asceticism is the idea that all pleasure is bad enjoyment in this life is evil and sinful and god is not happy if you're happy god wants you to be unhappy and so this idea that god just wants you to experience trial and suffering and never enjoy life was starting to creep into the church and this false teaching was sneaking in so paul responds to that in colossians 2 20 through 23 and says if with christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world." Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? By this he means extra-biblical rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let me summarize. That's a lot of stuff there. Essentially what he's saying is, look, you can make a lot of rules about trying to keep yourself from doing evil things on the outside, but those things ultimately don't change your heart. Self-help books might help you be a little bit more productive or lose some weight, but in terms of spiritual matters, they are no help at all. There is no self-help book or philosophy book or religious system that could ever teach you what God actually expects of you. On the other hand, Romans chapter 15 verse 4 explains to us, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. What does that mean? For our teaching that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It is the Bible that was written for our instruction. That is to say that it is the Scripture that is able to teach us everything that we need to know about life and godliness. That's why here at RGF, we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible. And the rare occasions when we're not preaching straight through a book of the Bible, we're doing a short, systematic teaching, for example, on the Trinity. So that there are things that are in the Bible that are not clearly printed in one place. So we try to do a systematic presentation, but not from our own philosophy, from the Bible. That is why on Tuesday nights, we are going through the book of Psalms together. That is why on Wednesdays, Jim has been teaching through the book of Jude. It's why we've been preaching through Genesis every summer. It's why we have Bible studies and community groups going through the scripture. It is why we give readings on Sunday mornings and memorization plans at the beginning of every year. And it is why we have the word of God central in our ladies Bible and brunch in our men's breakfast. We are not a people who gather just to talk. We are here to speak the word of God. If I came up here and told you a bunch of fun stories, you would walk away probably happy, but completely with no value. I have nothing to give you but the word of God. I have nothing of value to say other than the word of God. It is God's word that is able to teach us about who God is and by reflection who we are as his creation. Here's a second thing that we see is profitable the word is also profitable for reproof it's a fun word we don't use this word very much in our modern conversation and in fact most of the time i think we use it wrong it literally means the process by which something that is in darkness comes to light that's a cool word i like it paul is using this word to speak about how god will shine a light into your heart to see what is there The Bible operates like a searchlight. Now get this correct in your minds. It is not so God can see what's there. He knows. He is not surprised to find anything that's in there. It is so that we see it. Because we have many things in our lives that are hidden in darkness. This is why the Bible is so offensive to those who hate God. They don't want their wickedness to be exposed. This is what Jesus was saying when he was rejected. We see this in John three, 19 through 20. It says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We like our sin. We like to cover it up. We don't want it to be exposed. Jesus is the light of the world that comes and shines a light on the darkness, and every verse of the word of God is pointing to him. That is why the Bible is capable of shining like a spotlight into our hearts and finding every wickedness and exposing it so that it can be brought to the light and dealt with appropriately. Many of you have probably heard of Voltaire, the French philosopher. If you read his writings, I've read a, a few This man built his entire philosophy on the idea that there is no God. And he hated the idea that God would know us. He hated the idea of God at all. In fact, the way that he went about trying to undermine God was by undermining the word of God. And one of the things that he said in 1771 is, quote, another century and there will not be a single Bible on earth. 1771, he said that. Almost exactly 100 years later, Robert Ingersoll, which is a famous American philosopher and writer and, and, um, and a professor, he was called the great agnostic. I'll give you three guesses why. Uh, he hated God, and he hated the idea of God, and he began to try to undermine the belief of God by writing against the Word of God. And he said in 1871, 100 years after Voltaire, he said in 25 years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Kings and presidents and emperors all throughout history have outlawed the Bible many times over. In fact, around the world today there are 50 countries where the Bible is either illegal or very restricted. And those 50 countries represent well over 50% of the population of our globe. Yet the word of God continues to be the most translated, the most printed and most read book in the history of the world. It is an offense to those people who come to the word of God and it shines a light on them and they want to keep their sin. But to those who are being saved, when that light hits that sin, our desire is to Take it to the cross and say, Jesus paid it all. This is no longer mine. I give it up and I will live for you. Take this, Lord. I thank you that you have paid for it. Help me to live in a way that honors you. Here's the third way that the word of God is profitable. It is profitable for correction. After exposing wrong thinking and exposing wickedness in our lives, the Bible also teaches us how to change. The gospel not only saves us, but it transforms us. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. It causes us to love God. It causes us to pursue him. It causes us to desire to be like him. And as the word of God reveals what God is like, it teaches us what to put off. Over and over we see this phrase in the New Testament, to put off these deeds And then fourthly, the word of God is also profitable for training in righteousness. The Christian life is not only about putting off things. It's also about putting on attitudes and actions that accord with Christ himself. It's also about right thinking and right actions. Paul uses a metaphor here of training it's important to say this is very unlike the Greek word that he used for training earlier when he talked about an athlete, an athlete who would go out and they would practice their, their sport. Here he's not speaking about athletic training. Here he's using a word that literally means the way that you train up children. He is using something here that carries with it the idea of producing godly habits. As a parent of four kids... I am in the business of helping my children every day to develop habits that, Lord willing, will last a lifetime and will help them in their lives. I teach them simple things like brushing their teeth. I teach them things about getting along and about not being lazy. I am teaching Asaph to be diligent in his schoolwork. Or even on a very, very simple, basic level, I'm trying to teach Mordecai how to walk. And it's really fun because he's actually learning it. And he'll use that for the rest of his days, Lord willing. I am trying to guide them to a point of maturity. I am beyond just simple habits. I'm also in the business of daily correcting them. Their little hearts are filled with rebellion and greed and selfishness and laziness and all sorts of what the Bible calls foolishness. And part of my duty as a parent is to point them to wisdom and help them grow into mature human beings. And the Word of God is designed to do this kind of work in a new believer, not just with outward conformity, but it trains our inward heart to grow to spiritual maturity. It takes us from newborn believers who are dealing and fighting with a variety of sins to people who are growing in fighting that sin into mature soldiers of the word. There are sins that I've been unaware of in my entire life that I've been doing until this year. I was unaware that they were even in there. And as God shines the light on them and points them out to me through his word, I must deal with those things and grow beyond them and mature And what particular kind of maturity is it that Paul has in mind here? Righteousness. It's not just good actions. It's actual righteousness. The radical pursuit of the Christian life is to enjoy God. And as we find our joy in him, we begin to take joy in doing what he says and following in accordance with his standards. We begin to love what God loves. We begin to hate the things that God hates. This is what makes righteousness so different than self-righteousness. The self-righteous person plays a game of comparisons between himself and his neighbor. And as long as he can say, well, I'm better than that guy, then he thinks of himself as good. But the truly righteous person will see that the only way that we can please God is by trusting in him for grace. And we will trust the Lord with all of our heart, not leaning on our own understanding in all of our ways, we will acknowledge him. And then what will the result be that he will direct our paths? Or in other words, he will lead us in the way of righteousness, which is the other way it speaks about the right paths in the book of Proverbs. The self-righteous person is concerned with reputation I just want people to see me as good. But the righteous person is willing to be considered a fool for Christ. The self-righteous person believes that they can earn their way to God. But the righteous person believes that they cannot earn their way to God. Rather, the righteous person understands that salvation is nothing but a gift of God. So that nobody could ever boast about earning it. The righteous person understands that salvation comes from God alone. Whereas the self-righteous person minimizes socially acceptable sins. The self-righteous person will say, well, this is okay. People will be fine with that. And they instead emphasize whatever sins they don't themselves do. The righteous person knows that even their most righteous deeds done in their own works are actually filled with sin. They are filthy rags before God. And there's not a single part of the human heart that has not been infected with the curse of sin. Therefore, every part of their heart is desperately in need of the grace of God. What is it that can train us up so that we are not self-righteous people? What is it that can train our heart to actually be righteous people and produce good in us? As Paul says in verse 16, it is the word of God that produces that in us. And why is it God's desire for us to pursue this kind of righteousness? Verse 17 explains it very simply, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. First, It's necessary to restate that all four of the previous benefits of the scripture that I've mentioned are only true for those who have been saved. It is the man or the woman of God who will respond appropriately. These are not avenues to get your way to God. These are not avenues of salvation. These are glorious results of what happens when a saved person humbly comes to the word of God and God desires that all of his children will be complete. I love this word. The imagery of this word is like a puzzle where you have all the pieces spread out and there is just one left and you put it in and you say, it's perfect. Oftentimes in the New Testament, this same word is translated as perfect. It's absolutely complete. God wants that for us, that our lives will be so enamored with him that we begin to live in such a way that we are living in accordance with his word. Now, I don't think any of us will ever fully get there in this life, but every one of us who is in Christ, when we die, He's going to finish all those pieces for us, and we will be made perfect in heaven with him forever. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 speaks about how we are saved. It's this majestic joy of God's sovereignty in saving us that we see in those first nine verses. And it makes it abundantly clear that salvation is all of God. It is his sovereign work in our lives. But when we get to verse 10, he concludes the thought this way. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has foreordained that we should walk in a very particular way. And he desires that our days would be filled with good works. Christian, are you maturing? Are you living a life where you are growing abundantly in outworking of good? Are you becoming more like Christ? One of the ways that we get there is by regularly and faithfully coming before the word of God. So allow me to close with these two very simple final applications. First, faithfully read the Bible. We have the amazing privilege to have the word of God printed and accessible and affordable. And if you don't have a Bible, talk to me, I'll get you one. We have this in our own hands. You don't know how precious that is in all of history that we have this and we can legally read it. There's literally no excuse for us to fail to have a regular intake of the word of God. So read it every day. Find a pattern of reading it. Have some kind of a goal in mind, reading through a book or through a part of the Bible. Listen to the Bible on your phone. Listen to it in your car while you're in traffic. That's a good way to redeem the time. Read it at your dinner table. Discuss it with your family. Make every effort to fill your day with the word of God. And lastly, our, our last application for the day is simply this. Dig deeper. It's a wonderful thing to read the Bible widely, to come to God's word and want to know the breadth of all of that is there. And it is great to read large passages or even full books in one sitting. But it is also incredibly important to dig deep. I love John Piper's quote in this particular issue. He states, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. Come to the word of God and dig. Nobody ever studies the Bible by accident. That doesn't happen. It takes planning and determination. Make a plan, and if you don't know where to start, talk to me or one of the other pastors. We want to help you get there. And if you want to learn how to do an inductive Bible study, come to my house on Tuesday night. We're going to be going through a psalm. We're going to do an inductive Bible study where I show you how to do it. And we're just going to see how to dig a little deeper than just the surface level on the Word of God. So all the five benefits that we saw in this text, these are not just encouraging words. These are promises. These things are available to us in the Scripture. They are delights to our soul. And they're there for us if we'll only get our noses in the book and drink in all the glories of the Word of God. So please join me now as I pray. That God would indeed help us to be people of the book our God in heaven Lord I pray that we would be in awe of your kindness and your love and your mercy that you have cared for us to reveal who you are that you have not been silent that you have made it evident who you are Lord I thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross that we might be saved And Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word so that we might know all about it. We might know everything that we need to know about who you are and who we are and that we might know the gospel. God, I pray that we would be people who love your word and that we would dig deeply into your word and that we would delight in it. Please, God, change us, transform us where there is any laziness or apathy or refusal to be in the word. Please give us just a great delight to be there, filling our minds and our heart with it. And Lord, I pray that doing so, You would change us. You would make us more like Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Jake's going to come forward. He's going to share the announcement with us uh, us here in a moment. Um, But I want to make sure I get an opportunity to do this before I sit down. Uh, This morning we were led in music, in in musical worship, by Christoph. This is his first time doing it for us, and he did a great job. Just want to encourage him. Thank you, Christoph. Please make sure that you speak to him and encourage him and. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see him here again, leading us once again. Thank you, Christoph.